0: Today's episode is brought to you by Audible, the internet's best source for audiobooks and audio entertainment. Go to audibletrial.com slash deep into history to get your free audiobook download. If you want to know more about today's topic, I highly recommend a book of fiction that also offers a lot of cultural context and rare insight into feudal Japan. Shogun by James Clavell. It's a wonderful read. That's audibletrial.com slash deep into history. The best part is if you decide to cancel within 30 days, you get to keep your audiobook for free. Once again, that's audibletrial.com slash deep into history. Sign up today. I would like to dedicate this episode to the Wu-Tang Clan and all its members. Your beats and lyrics got me through some of the darkest moments of my life. Your words inspired me to seek my inner strength so that I could find the light again. Thank you for 25 wonderful years of music. I can think of no better way to honor your art than with my own. All that's left to do is throw a W up in the air and say, Wu-Tang, Wu-Tang, Wu-Tang. Let's go. This is Deep Into History and I'm your host Arjun Hundo. Consider this a foreword. Today I need your help. I need you to prepare your imagination to accept a shift in the historical paradigm. I need you to accept the fact that sometimes history is often written from a point of view that is prejudiced by the social norms and generally accepted beliefs of whatever society or time period in which it is recorded. This is unfortunately the case for many episodes of Eastern history that were recorded by Westerners and vice versa. The parts of our collective story that have been altered the most, more than any others by far, are those of African descent. In the case of our hero to B, as the historical record stands, he's predominantly recorded as a slave, occasionally as a servant, both completely preposterous origins given what he achieves and how a completely alien culture comes to respect and even revere him. This episode is the culmination of years of reading, allowing me to slowly and piece by piece solve this historical mystery and give it the authentic flavor it so desperately deserves. It gives me great pleasure to share this moment of history with you for the first time. Finally, the way it should be told. You know, the way it actually happened. So after a lot of thought and research, triangulating the facts and lore, no easy feat in this case, and acting in my capacity as your lore master, I've decided to treat our hero to be as the lifelong warrior he so clearly was, and offer the respect and recognition that his people so absolutely deserve. Keep that in mind as we go forward. And with that said, this foreword comes to an end. I'm going to do things a little differently today. I want to set up the extraordinarily complex period our story comes from by first introducing you to some of our supporting cast, if you will. I'll transport you to the battlefield of one of the most crucial turning points in Japanese history and you'll see it through the eyes of the man who would become known as the first unifier of Japan, Oda Nobunaga. The setup to our setup goes like this. A dynastic dispute between two of the most powerful clans in Japan turns violent, all-consuming, and becomes known as the Onin War. It quickly escalates and spirals out of control, destroying any semblance of central authority in Japan. In 1467, it becomes a full-scale civil war. With no central government, hundreds of local lords, called daimyos, rise up against each other to acquire as much land, castles, and manpower as they can. Like a dropped mirror, Japan is shattered into hundreds of warring fiefdoms. The result is 100 years of total war, Sengoku Jedi. It is a time of ninjas, Buddhist warrior monks, and legendary samurai. It is a time of constant battles, betrayal, and assassinations. And while every side has its hero, every side has even more hated villains. It is a time of strife and blood feuds, where entire clans are wiped out, and when the humblest peasants rise to become great lords. So take a deep breath, let it out slowly, put some smoke in the air if you choose, and get ready to dream with me as we take a trip back deep into the 16th century Japan and the chaos of Sengoku Jedi, the War of the Clans. Ready? Then let's go. You are riding through a thick forest at the head of an extremely long column of men, horses and ox carts. To your right sits your friend and ally Tokugawa Ieyasu, a powerful daimyo looking very concerned and restless. You see his armored fist tightly clenching and releasing the reins of his war horse. You must relax brother, we'll reach him in time, you say trying to calm your dearest friend's nerves. You see the column that you are leading is in fact an army 38,000 men strong. Tokugawa's son and heir is currently besieged in a castle with less than 500 men who are quickly running out of supplies, and under constant attack from the army of a feared and justifiably dreaded Takeda clan, who have a 30 to 1 advantage in numbers, with vastly more samurai than any other army in Japan. He grunts in reply, always a man of few words, and careful not to reveal his emotions, though you do notice that your words have caused a grip on his horse's reins to loosen slightly. It was only days before that he had sent a messenger with the dire news of the siege, and you rushed to combine your forces on the forest road to make the long march together. You pat his armored shoulder like an older brother would. The alliance that exists between your clans, the Oda, and Tokugawa, is an extension of the deeply held respect you have for one another. The fact that you have both proved time and again that under no circumstances would you ever betray the other has given your clans the edge that they needed to survive, and indeed thrive, in the hellfire of Sengoku Jedi. In this age of constant backstabbing, betrayals, and suspicion, having just one reliable ally that you can depend on no matter what has enabled you to destroy much larger and more powerful clans. In the process, you have both become powerful daimyos and have vastly expanded your clan's lands, holding, influence, and manpower. There is a rustle in the thick tree line to the side of the forest road. The sound causes your honor guard to surround you. Emerging from the foliage like ghosts, three of Tokugawa's scouts come forward. They are covered head to toe in black and brown patchwork, with leaves and sticks strategically placed as camouflage, only their eyes visible through slits in their cloth face masks. You notice that they are not alone, as a ragged and clearly exhausted man is pulled out of the forest on a rope lead, his mouth and hands bound. The first scout pulls off his mask and bows to both of you. You see a very familiar young man and search your memory for his name. It comes to you. He's Hanzo, leader of the Koga ninja clan sworn to protect your sworn brother next to you, Tokugawa Ieyasu. Hanzo's ninja have been making constant sweeps of the forest, acting as scouts, disarming booby traps, and searching for signs of assassins in the woods. You are glad for their presence as they are a powerful and incalculably valuable addition to your army. We found this man running through the woods. He says he came from Nagashino Castle with a plea for aid from your heir, Daimyo, Hanzo says to Tokugawa, who then motions for the prisoner to be brought forward and proceeds to inspect the man's face closely. Untie him. I know this man. He is samurai to my son, Tokugawa says. The man's bonds are cut and he steps forward and bows. Before he speaks, Hanzo hands him a water skin from which he drinks deeply. Daimyo, I am Sune Eman. He proceeds to give you a full report of the situation. Nagashino Castle is surrounded on all but one side by two rivers. The enemy Takeda clan has 15,000 men and is trying to breach the walls with deep digging sappers and is in the process of building two massive siege towers. Once completed, the siege engines would allow their huge numerical advantage to come into play and the castle would fall. The defenders holding on for now and fighting valiantly were perilously low on food, with as little as five days worth of provisions left. When asked how he managed to penetrate the siege lines, Sune proceeds to tell you of an incredible escape from the besieged castle. At night, he dived off the walls into the fast-flowing river. With his wakizashi, his short katana, the only weapon he carried with him, he swam underwater, barely breaking the surface to breathe, and one by one cut through the nets the besiegers had placed there to prevent just such an escape. He then disabled their physical alarms of ropes hung with bells, Dodge patrols, and carefully made his way through the enemy camp. Before leaving the castle behind, Sune Amen climbed the highest hill in the area and lit a bonfire as a signal to the men in the castle that he made it out alive. Now, days later, starving and exhausted, he had reached you, only to find you already marching to relieve the castle. The man impresses you greatly, and though you beg him, he refuses your offer of rest, and in turn begs you to be allowed to make his way back to the castle to light another signal fire so the defenders would know your army was on the way. Unsure, you look to Tokugawa, who nods and looks at the exhausted samurai and says, Hitori Hanzo will guide you there and back. All three ninja bow and help the men re-enter the forest. With their subtle skill, it is as if they were never there. Not a single footprint is visible. The Takeda clan has 15,000 at the castle, which means at least 10,000 knights, all samurai, says Tokugawa Ieyasu, something in his voice very close to despair. No one has ever stood a charge from that many before no one he says worry becoming his voice and completely taking over his demeanor trust in the plan my friend you say looking over your shoulder at the dozens of ox carts stacked high with sections of sharpened bamboo fencing The truth is you have been waiting for just such a chance. For decades the Takeda clan with their near monopoly on heavy cavalry which have been achieved through jealous guardianship and hoarding of the only large breeding population of heavy warhorses. This had allowed the Takeda clan to dominate nearly every pitched battle they ever fought in the Sengoku Jedi. The Takeda samurai knights had wiped out the armies of entire provinces with a single charge. Not to mention the fact that the Takeda through their constant support of your enemies has been a perennial thorn in your side. No more. You were ready for them, ready to bring down the arrogant Ikeda clan once and for all. Knowing that one day you would have to face them, and finally finding what you thought was the answer to the question of how to defeat the samurai knights, you had spent the better part of a decade preparing for this encounter. In the previous years, you were one of the very few daimyos to embrace, trade with, and learn from the alien strangers from a very far away land. They called themselves the Portuguese. They stank, ate too much meat, and couldn't use chopsticks. You called them the Southern Barbarians. And they, in exchange for what for you were trivial amounts of gold, a few jade trinkets, and many lesser baubles, gave you a weapon unlike anything you had ever seen before. It was called an arquebus, a matchlock gun, a rifle. After witnessing a display of the guns, you saw their potential as weapons, and immediately you bought as many of them as you could from the traders, and then had your blacksmiths copy them exactly, thousands of times, along with smelting millions of balls of shot. You sent your own valuable merchants as far away as China to secure vast quantities of the ingredients for gunpowder. Though many other clans have the weapons, none have reached your level of efficiency with them. Your innovation? Having three lines of expert marksmen alternating between firing and reloading so that there is never more than a ten second gap between volleys. Years of drilling, training and literal tons of gold had gone into preparing for the coming battle. A huge gamble on a tactic that had yet to be tested on the battlefield. But you are Oda Nobunaga, and you are always willing to throw the dice. You can't help but recall the time you were eighteen, a newly made daimyo, and had ambushed an army of twenty-five thousand men with just two thousand samurai. In the darkness you launched a daring night attack with your few and had utterly routed the huge army. The slightest grin touches the corner of your lips at the thought of your first glorious victory. The long days of marching pass slowly as anticipation of the coming battle builds among the soldiers of the army. You speak to your captains, telling them to reassure the men, for you know they are all terrified of facing the charge of the Takeda Samurai. On the third day, Hitori Hanzo returns with the sad news that Sune Aiman had been captured while attempting to light a signal fire. Hanzo's skill at stealth and deception had allowed him to witness what transpired after the samurai's capture. He was offered his life and freedom on the condition that he tell the besieged defenders that no help was coming and that they should surrender the castle immediately that Takeda had tied him to a tall crucifix and placed him close enough to the castle walls so that he could be heard. He was surrounded by Takeda's soldiers with long spears. Instead of saving his own life, Sune yelled to the besieged that your army was near, to hold on at all costs, and above all, fight. For this he was stabbed repeatedly, and his body was brought to the ground and butchered before the eyes of the weeping defenders on the walls. "'We will avenge him,' you growled angrily. "'Spread the tale so all men know of his sacrifice.' Hanzo bows and moves away silently. You tell one of your pages to make sure that Sune family has sent enough gold to live on comfortably for the rest of their lives. As the tale spreads, you notice that the pace of the army has quickened slightly, and the men look more alert. From their eyes, you can feel that they share your anger. Good, you think. On the fifth day, you finally breach the forest line, and the column slowly exits onto a vast plain that slopes down to a river. In the far distance, you see Nagashino Castle, and note that you have made it in the nick of time for it looks like the construction on the enemy siege towers was nearly completed. An enemy horn is sounded in the far distance. Your army has been spotted. This was expected, however. In fact, it was only through the efforts of Hanzo's ninja that your army's approach wasn't spotted sooner. Not wanting to risk being caught in the open, you order your army to deploy immediately, and your samurai begin yelling orders. You embrace your friend Tokugawa Ieyasu. For in any battle, there is always a risk you will not meet again in this world. He takes command of your light cavalry and heads out to secure the flanks, screen the force while it assembles. It is up to you to handle the disposition of the army. On your orders, the men assemble the sharpened bamboo fence sections into a broken grid so there is space between each, hundreds of yards across, and many lines deep, forming a checkered board pattern so that retreat and movement between the defensive fortifications was relatively easy. The line of fortifications began on your side of the river, exactly 50 yards back from the river's edge, the maximum deadly range of your rifles. As a steady rain begins to fall, you smile. You are not concerned about your men keeping their gunpowder dry, for they have been drilled for this. The more wet the ground becomes, however, the slower the Takeda cavalry charge will become. Your 3,000 aquabasiers form a line 6 across and 3 deep behind each of the barriers in the first few rows. In the lines behind those are Samurai and common soldiers all equipped with Yari, long infantry spears perfect for fighting cavalry up close. On the flank, the Tokugawa clan formed their Samurai into blocks with long Yari to secure both sides of the line. Equipped with shields, they are a Samurai Phalanx with the light cavalry screening for everyone. Your battle lines formed, ready, you settle in to wait. It isn't long before the entire force of dreaded Takeda cavalry is formed up and is riding towards your position. They had left their infantry behind to maintain the siege, over 10,000 heavy cavalry heading straight for you, a force that could crush any other army in Japan. At a half mile from the river, the disciplined ranks of ornately armored men and horses stops to dress their lines. Many of the riders bear pennants and banners on poles rising from their backs. Each samurai's faceplate is unique, some simple, many more molded and painted to look like Oni demons, vicious animals, mythical monsters, or warriors out of legend. Each of the enormous chargers is in lacquered armor matching their riders, each delicate scale concealing a small steel plate. An enemy horn is blown and their long heavy spears are lowered as they begin to charge. A single tear drops from your right eye and flows down your cheek. They are beautiful, magnificent even glorious, and they all must die for daring to besiege Tokugawa's heir. You hold up one finger, and the Signaler in your honor guard lets loose a short, high-pitched burst from his war horn, informing the army to be ready to receive the Takeda charge. Though the wet ground is slowing them, they are riding at a gallop and seems utterly unstoppable, until they reach the river, that is. The water, submerged mud, and uneven riverbed completely slows down and breaks up the charge, just as you had planned. Wait, you say to your Signaler watching as the first few dozen samurai knights make it across the river and desperately try for their horses to gain their speed again. Hold, you say, watching as dozens becomes hundreds, and then, now, the signaler's war horn blares and in answer 1,000 rifles fire at the mass cavalry. Ten seconds later, a thousand more. Blast, followed by the last line of thousand. Blast, and then just like clockwork, the first line opens fire ten seconds after that then 10 seconds, then the third, and on and on and on. An endless cycle of volleys, exactly what you had trained your men to do, and they were doing it perfectly. To them, the battle was just a particularly bloody drill. The effect of the mass gunfire is beyond anything you could have imagined. Men and horses are decimated by the nonstop barrage. Their fine and strong armor, more than capable of stopping most arrows or even a direct slash from a katana, prove useless against the shots fired from the rifles. Even the riders that make it through are stymied by the irregular barricades and are soon cut down by your samurai wielding their yari. Though you question the enemy commander's wisdom for not withdrawing, the bravery of the samurai knights is beyond question. Under the withering and lethal barrage, they keep coming and in places penetrate three layers of the barricades before being brought down. In the far distance near the castle, you see flames rising from the nearly completed siege towers and many enemy tents. Hittori Hanzo's ninja had struck the enemy camp, and from the screams, they were slaughtering the enemy infantry consisting mainly of peasant levies. Effective enough, but no match for samurai, let alone a clan of Koga ninja. After only a few hours, the battle ends with the Takeda leader and a few retainers seen fleeing the battlefield. You destroyed the most powerful cavalry force Japan had ever seen, 10,000 of them, everyone a samurai. You move to the front with your honor guard to offer a chance to surrender to the survivors. There are only a few dozen, and to a man they refuse, and ask to commit seppuku, ritual suicide, so that they may regain their honor and death. You nod, allowing it. One by one they unsheathe their wakizashi. For the few who wish it, your scribes record their death poems to be sent to their families later. Then they take the short katana and cut deep into and across their abdomens. As your respect for these warriors grows enormously, you notice that one of their commanders is too weak to lift his sword. So you do him the honor of a slash across the throat from your katana, dispatching him to the afterlife with honor. You turn to face your army and raise your blood-streaked sword to the sky and are met with a roaring cheer. Tokugawa Ieyasu rides up to you with a huge smile on his face and yells, No one can stop you from unifying the provinces now, brother. You turn and survey the carnage. In the distance the shadows of the cheering men on the walls are silhouetted and amplified on the rising smoke from the enemy camp by flashes of lightning. You think to yourself, men will call me Oda Nobunaga, the Unifier. And then, as a deafening crack of thunder blocks out all other sounds, no, you think. One day they will call me Shogun. Let the battlefield, the men cheering on the walls of the distant castle, and the smoking ruins of the enemy camp slowly fade away. Come back to deepen the history and hear me say, this is the tale of an expert mercenary who undertakes an extremely dangerous mission for a considerable feat, which will sustain his people and allow them to continue to thrive in what after hundreds of years has become their new homeland. The tale of an ambitious and talented missionary, desperate to survive long enough in a completely alien culture in order to invest its people with the love of Christ, and perhaps, just perhaps, open the first church, a feat worthy of promotion to the head of his order, a rank equivalent to that of a prince in Europe. The tale of a strange alliance that allows the story of a bodyguard and his principal to burst through the fog of history and become the stuff of legends in this very episode. The tale of how an actual alien friendship formed between the highest daimyo in Japan, the shogun, lord of lords, and the scion of African transplants who came to warriors to the southwest coast of India and there became entranced by an ancient way of life, who stayed there to devote themselves completely to and become masters of one of the first martial arts mankind ever created. Kalaripat. Combat yoga. So take a deep breath and relax as we go deep into the 16th century. Enter Yasuke, the African Samurai. Welcome. To give you a flavor of the time period, let's first take a macro look at the world as it was in the 1500s. It is the age of exploration. With the discovery of the new world, the powers of Europe are eager to claim as much land as they can and in the process turn their kingdoms into vast empires. It is the height of the Renaissance, a time of deep thinking, art, and cultural achievements, which is as much about rediscovering the wisdom of the ancients as it is about seeking out new ideas. More than a few explorers cower ancient texts for clues about the locations of distant lands whose people may have access to untold amounts of gold and silver, for you see, these explorers sought to extract that wealth by any means necessary. Many are drawn to the tales of Marco Polo and his description of an island called Chipangu, which was said to hold untold riches and was coveted by Mongol Khans. It is also a time of deep moral dilemma for the church. With the discovery of new lands and their indigenous people, it is their God-given mandate to spread the good word and convert them to Christianity. However, it is also a time where pagans, particularly those from Africa, are seen as a commodity by sections of the merchant class and are brutally kidnapped and forced into slavery. The vast profits from the slave trade and the subsequent lavish donations, in essence bribes, have for now split the church into factions, for and against the vicious and soulless slave trade. With no moral majority, the trade spreads and expands, only to grow in the coming centuries. With innovations in shipbuilding and the rigging of sails, Portugal is at the cutting edge of naval technology. This has allowed them to round the Horn of Africa and gain vast wealth from the spice trade coming from India. They have set up colonies up and down the eastern and western coasts of the Dark Continent and established a heavy presence on the island of Mozambique. On the subcontinent of India, the tropical port of Goa has recently become a firmly held Portuguese colony and a commercial hub for the small European nation. However, their influence stopped there. In the hinterland beyond the beautiful port, a far more ancient way of life held sway and in fact actively discouraged further Portuguese penetration inland. A society that took a distinctly negative view of the slavers, as if they took the practice of slavery very personally. Alessandro Valignano, an Italian born in Naples, was a Jesuit missionary who had excelled at his seminary training in Rome. He was so gifted at spreading the love of Christ and converting people, even devout Muslims, to the Catholic faith that he quickly rose high in his order. He was put in charge of the church's conversion mission in the Far East, which included southern India, China, and Japan. His genius was to incorporate local traditions and celebrations and slowly cast them in a Christian light so his missions experienced far less friction against the proud local cultures of the East. He was tall and very charismatic. He spoke several languages including Italian, Classical Chinese which was spoken in coastal China and Japan at the time, Spanish, Basque, and Portuguese. Another fun fact, Alessandro hated slavery. He saw it as the barbaric practice it was, and though forced to deal with slavers by his church, he went out of his way to convert as many Africans as he could, thus by church edict immunizing them from being taken as slaves. On previous trips to Africa, this had caused countless problems between him and the Portuguese slavers there. He had heard vivid descriptions of the Japanese culture, and though he had only briefly visited the Far East, as we approach 1579, he is preparing for his ultimate test complete immersion in an alien land with a hyper-aggressive honor culture where the slightest insult, perceived or imagined, would end in his death. He had a plan though, a way to counter the random attacks from bands of samurai every other missionary had faced, ending up dead or without supplies. It involved getting to Goa and going into the hinterlands, deep into the hinterland, for he was a learned man who had studied history and understood what lay there, a warrior society that took great exception to the Portuguese slavers. He had read the reports of squads of Portuguese soldiers they had sent to explore the hills that never returned. He also knew why. They would have had no chance against the warriors of Karnataka, the Siddhi, also referred to as the Habshi by the people of northern India. The ancient warriors from Africa had come as mercenaries and settlers, part of a Muslim invasion along the Indus River in Punjab in the 8th century. They were expert swordsmen from the central, ethnically Bantu plains of Africa. Entire tribes, women and children, moved with their mercenary men. Once the invasion succeeded, those who wished to stay in the north had to convert to Islam, move further east, and convert to Hinduism. Either area meant always having to deal with the constant wars for control of the rich north. Those who sought a different way of life moved south, following the west coast, until they found the temples of Kalariput in the province of Karnataka. Many siddhi took an instant liking to the ancient art of combat yoga, and perhaps as many as 4,000 decided to settle there in villages with their families and devote themselves to the study of the art in the temples in the early ninth century. Kalaripat, or Kalari, is an ancient form of martial arts that is centered around yogic principles, postures, and discipline. When projected outwards, it created devastating yet oddly beautiful motions, combat yoga. Unfortunately, the examples of the art that have survived to today are ceremonial and meant for grand artistic displays. The practice was banned by the British Raj in the following centuries, so the knowledge of many of the deadly patterns has been lost to history. Historians agreed that actual Kalari could be deadly in the extreme as a combined yoga, which gave extreme knowledge of one's own body, and Shushruta, which once mastered, gave one the ability to manipulate 107 nerves in another Person's body. When combined with the quick, precise, graceful strikes of combat yoga forms and with the city's natural height and strength, the result were warriors nearly unrivaled in single combat. Alongside the offensive styles, they learned Ayurvedic principles that they used to perform healing massages which could help cure muscle injuries. Every warrior had to spend years mastering the Kalari weapons. These included a long and short spear, a short sword wielded with a small shield called a buckler a mace, a staff, three types of dagger, and uniquely the Urumi, a four-pronged whip with razors on the points. This was worn around the waist as a belt and went completely unnoticed when they were required to disarm. In addition, it was required to become experts in Musti Yuda, an ancient style of boxing, and Malayuda, a form of combat wrestling. Picture a mix of Israeli Krav Maga and Brazilian Jiu Jitsu with the focus on killing your opponent from any position and you'll have a good idea of the technique. They were also required to become fluid in several, perhaps as many as six languages because of the huge variety spoken on the subcontinent. After mastery of the two offensive stances, every warrior would have to spend years learning the defensive stance, which is said to have allowed a single Kalari warrior to form a defensive bubble wild enough to provide cover for another individual for some time while in the heat of battle. Once mastery of the defensive form was achieved, the city warriors were in huge demand as bodyguards for many of the royal courts and principalities in India and as far away as Thailand. Hiring a single city was extremely expensive and required an upfront payment to the temple. They would then swear service to you, their life before yours, for an agreed and set time period based on the size of the payment. The money would be used to care for the city people of Karnataka. Through their skill, these bodyguards became famous. Some even rose to high rank and commanded the armies of their lords. Upon his arrival in Goa, Alessandro Valignano, from now on referred to as the Jesuit, made his way into the hills of Karnataka alone on a horse-drawn cart packed high with valuables. He dared not take any of the Portuguese soldiers with him, for they surely would be dealt with harshly. Instead he held his crucifix out before him, trusting in God that the city would see him as no threat and allow them into their temples. This work, he told the master of a temple of his requirements and after a long negotiation a price was agreed upon. He left and upon his return to Goa was met at the docks by a man history would come to know as Yasuke. We know almost nothing of their voyage, but it might have gone something like this. You were seated at the table in the crew section of the hold of a large Portuguese galley. The sway of the ship to the regular waves of the Indian Ocean is almost tolerable after the three-day storm you have just endured, which hit scant hours after you left the port city of Goa in India. Having never been to sea before, the storm had been a seemingly unending spell of seasickness for you. Now, past the horrible weather, you have finally found your sea legs and are able to keep down some thin broth. The ship suddenly tilts at a steep angle, and your wooden bowl of broth falls to the floor. "Rogue wave," says your charge, reaching for the seat across from yours. It's best to always keep one hand on your dish while at sea, he says. His Portuguese comes out force, as if it's not his native tongue. The man in his black Jesuit robes sits and glances around as if to make sure no one is in earshot and says, I was told you speak Latin. You nod, Latin being only one of the six languages you speak fluently. Seamlessly switching to Latin, he goes on, I'm sorry we haven't had the chance to speak earlier. I'm glad to see you are able to keep some food down. You must maintain your strength for where we were going. You will need it. Your eyes meet. Your master told you of my mission, he asks? You nod. Good. I've arranged for you to have the space required for daily training deep in the hold of the ship. As far as the crew is concerned, you are my page and servant. Nothing more. Again, you nod. During our months at sea, I will require you to study the Chinese language with me. An ancient dialect of it is spoken in Japan. We both must become fluent in it. I'm told you have a basic understanding of these. She, you say. Meaning yes, in the ancient tongue. Good. Do you know why I chose to venture so very far to hire you, he asks. With more venom than intended, you say, because I look like them, waving your hands to the far side of the room where the ship's African slaves are being fed, chained like animals. Yes, the perfect cover. The only dark-skinned people the Japanese have ever seen are the slaves on Portuguese ships, he sounds disgusted by the practice, which you find endearing. I hope that fact will allow you to travel with me without drawing suspicion or for you to be seen as a threat to the samurai. Many missionaries have died for giving the slightest insult while traveling there, as I don't fully understand their culture, it is entirely possible that I will unintentionally give offense as well. You may not be able to carry weapons openly, yet you must always be prepared to protect me. I am Sidi. I am always prepared. You have my oath. My life before yours, you say solemnly, meaning every word. You may call me Alessandro, he says offering you his hand to shake. And your name, my Sidi friend? You shake his hand firmly and say. Yasuke. The coming months pass quickly, doing your training routines in the morning, afternoons filled with the study of ancient Chinese with the Jesuit, speaking with one another for practice and slowly becoming proficient in the language. You truly grow to like and respect the man, but you must keep your distance. He is your principal and you are his bodyguard. In the evenings after the Jesuit has led the ship in prayer, you often share wine with him and speak of your people. On other occasions, he has you drill with the ship's soldiers so you can learn to fire rifles and the ship's cannon. You quickly become proficient at using the firearms and are soon winning impromptu competitions with your uncanny accuracy. After months, you reach a bustling port city in what you are told is China. You change ships for the short voyage to the Japanese port of Nagasaki. Here we'll leave Yasuke and the Jesuit for now. The situation in Japan was more stable than during the Battle of Nagashino that we witnessed together. The importance of that battle and its effects in Japan are very much akin to the Battle of Agincourt that we covered in the episode The Day Chivalry Died. The destruction of the samurai and knights of the Takeda clan signaled the end of an old way of battle and ushered in the era of concentrated fire, though in this case instead of longbows it was achieved with rifles. Oda Nobunaga is now Shogun of Japan, meaning Head Warlord or Generalissimo and is called a unifier. Though still gripped in the chaos and bloodshed of Sengoku Jedi, the south central provinces on the main island of Honshu are firmly under his control, and there is a semblance of central authority returning for the first time in many decades. His most loyal vassal and friend Tokugawa Ieyasu has become his right hand and leads their armies constantly pushing and expanding the boundaries of their dominion, while other vassals handle local uprisings and diplomacy. Shogun Oda Nobunaga has brilliantly kept the ancient family of the Emperor's puppet leaders completely symbolic and ceremonial while he controls everything. Oda's rule is strict, absolute, and bloody. At the slightest sense of betrayal, he has ordered entire clans wiped out. Though he's loved and revered by many, his regime is maintained through fear and extreme violence. Remember, we are still in Sengoku Jedi, and the war of the clans rages like wildfire in the rest of the country. The Jesuit's plan for himself and Yasuke to proceed through the port of Nagasaki and follow the country road to the capital works perfectly. As far as we know, they were not accosted on the road, or if they were, Yasuke quickly and quietly dealt with the attackers. Along the way, they stopped at the castles and manor houses of local daimyos, offering gifts of silk from China in exchange for their hospitality and for the Jesuit to spread the word of his God. He was a truly gifted missionary, and Yasuke witnesses and convert many of the samurai and their retainers to Christianity. The Jesuit wished to reach the capital Kyoto and try to ingratiate himself with local officials and possibly, by bestowing lavish gifts and bribes, get an audience with the shogun himself. Little did he know that he need not have bothered, because upon entering the capital, all of his plans are rendered useless because of the presence of Yasuke. You see, Kyoto is inland, and as a result, the people there were not exposed to foreigners on their ships, let alone a person of African descent. They had never seen a black man before, and huge crowds gathered to look at him and touch his hair. In fact, the Japanese were so curious that many riots erupted whenever the pair were seen in public, just for the chance to see the strangers. The shogun, Oda Nobunaga, was a man who liked his city and its citizens orderly and compliant. Reports of these mini-riots and civil disruptions reached his ears and he ordered the strange pair to be brought before him. Soon after, the Jesuit and Yasuke were surrounded by dozens of samurai and marched to the shogun's palace at Swords point. The fateful meeting after this. I hope you're enjoying this episode of Deep Into History. It took a lot of time and effort to write and create just for you. I want to continue to do this and to give you new content each month, but to do so I really need your help. Please go to patreon.com slash deep history to pledge your support. It's barely 10 cents a day and it means the world to me in the show. That's patreon.com/slash deep history. Each month you'll have access to an exclusive Patreon episode and a growing library of previous Patreon-only episodes. As promised last episode, this month we'll go deep into the year 301 BC and once again ride to battle with the very young Pyrrhus of Epirus in his first major conflict, in what turned out to be the most titanic battle of the war for control of Alexander's empire called the Funeral Games. I'll take you right into the heart of the battle and you'll experience firsthand what happens when your army gets charged by 400 Indian war elephants. Get ready for the exciting adventure I call the closing ceremonies. This month, only on Patreon. Now back to Enter Yasuke, the African Samurai. The Jesuit and Yasuke were ushered into the ornate and elegant throne room of the shogun's palace. The room was filled with scribes and petitioners from the provinces. The walls of the room were covered in large maps with gorgeously crafted pins indicating the location and disposition of armies. For above all, the shogun was the warlord of warlords, and he directed the campaigns of entire armies when he wasn't leading one himself. There was a constant stream of messengers coming in and out of the room, either bringing news from the provinces or from the front. When they reached the center of the room, the noise and bustle disappeared. One could hear a pin drop. Everyone in the room was staring at Yasuke, in shock and in complete disbelief. While some were no doubt equally curious about the Jesuit, you have to remember that no one there had ever seen an African person before. Though not the same of course, we're all human after all. This is as close to an actual alien encounter as it gets in history. Oda Nobunaga, the shogun, though equally mystified by Yasuke, was more immediately suspicious than amazed. He ordered men to bring soap and water and scrub the city's skin clean of what he assumed was makeup or paint, after which he would have the pair dealt with harshly for their fraud. Yasuke removed his shirt and allowed them to give him what amounted to a public bath. It soon became clear that Yasuke was as real as they were. The shogun ordered the room cleared and spoke with them. He had long had dealings with the Portuguese and knew much and more about the missionaries who had come before. Remember, Yasuke's role as bodyguard required him to be silent, watch, and listen. It is doubtful that he said much at this meeting. From Japanese sources, we know that they recorded Yasuke as being six foot two tall and heavily muscled, and he wouldn't have had the telltale whip and lash marks covering his back and torso that were indicative of slavery. This was made plain to the entire court when his shirt was removed. It's safe to say that Oda Nobunaga was more than a little curious about the large African because he offered the guides to escort the Jesuit and his strange companion to a few towns so that the missionary could spread the good word of his lord and then escort them back to the palace. Such a generous offer from such a powerful warlord would have been impossible to refuse. I want to take a moment and mention something that rang true to me throughout my research. It's this. Trained warriors conduct themselves differently than normal people called a land, self-confidence, even chivalry. I'm sure many of you know people who served in the military, and in particular those in the special elite forces, have a certain self-assuredness about them. This would have been doubly true for warriors of this area, who trained since birth and knew no other life. You know the saying, real recognizes real. I mention this because I suspect this was the root of Odo Nobunaga's suspicions about Yasuke. They departed on their two week mission with Oda's guides. Now no source records what happens on this trip, but I suspect that the party was waylaid by a few ronin, masterless samurai who often turned to banditry to support themselves. In this circumstance, Yasuke would have dropped his mask and entered a Kalari defensive stance, pushing the Jesuit behind him and crushing the highwaymen. The guides would have reported this. I suspect that an event like this took place because as soon as they returned to the shogun's palace, Oda Nobunaga asked to speak with Yasuke alone. It was the first of many long conversations they would have over the coming days. Yasuke even took part in wrestling bouts against Master Samurai and consistently won, thrilling the shogun's court and earning huge windfalls for those who chose to bet on him. The shogun and Yasuke spent more and more time together each day. We have no idea what was said, but we can guess that the warriors shared information about their cultures and fighting styles. I believe, and the sources heavily insinuate, that a genuine friendship formed between the two very different men. What came next must have been a shock for the Jesuit. The shogun offered to allow him to build the first Catholic church in Japan, his greatest desire, if he would release Yasuke from his service so that he could join the shogun's court as a page. This was an enormously generous offer, and the Jesuit eagerly accepted. And just like that, Yasuke became the equivalent of a squire to Odo Nobunaga. He was instructed in the warrior code of the samurai, Bushido, its eight virtues as follows. Righteousness, G. To the true warrior, all points of view are deeply considered regarding honesty, justice, and integrity. Warriors always make a full commitment to their decisions. 2. Heroic courage. You. Living life in a shell like a turtle is not a life worth living. Calculated risk gives life the spice a warrior deserves. 3. Benevolence and compassion. Jin. True warriors help their fellow men at every opportunity. If an opportunity does not arise, they go out of the way to find one. 4. Respect. Rei. True warriors have no reason to be cruel. 5. Honesty. Makoto. When warriors say they will perform an action, it is as good as done. 6. Honour. Mayo. Warriors have only one judge of honor and character, and it is themselves, for you cannot hide from yourself. 7. Duty and loyalty. Chugi. To everyone that they are responsible to and for, they remain fiercely true. 8. Self-control. GC moderation in all things. The key to life is balance. If that sounds eerily familiar, it should. Again, remember my episode The Day Chivalry Died and the Knights of France. It's an incredible oddity of history that two completely different societies on opposite sides of the world evolved almost identical warrior codes, samurai and knights. And just like the knights of Europe, most samurai only paid lip service to the code and conducted themselves in any way they felt like. Cruelty, lies, betrayal and a complete lack of empathy more accurately describe most samurai. Our friend and shogun Oda Nobunaga for example, though open-handed with his favorite allies, could be ruthless with his vassals and order the mass murder of his enemies. He had to. He was born into the chaos of Sengoku Jedi. It was to kill or be killed, be feared or be seen as weak, and in only the rarest of cases could anyone be trusted. Yasuke would have learned many of the other oddities of samurai life, like their names. Let's take Oda Nobunaga for example. The first part of his name, Oda, is his clan name, meaning he is of the Oda clan. If When you say he's the Oda, it means he is head of the Oda clan. The second name, Nobunaga, is the last in a very long line of second names. You see, as samurai rise higher in rank or achieve great deeds, their second names sort of level up to reflect their new status. This is the reason that so many people find Japanese history difficult to penetrate. A man like Oda Nobunaga or Tokugawa Ieyasu would sometimes have dozens of names throughout their lives thus making it very difficult to follow their history. In our tale I'm using their ultimate and most famous names for simplicity. Perhaps it was the fact that he was completely foreign was why Oda Nobunaga trusted and liked Yasuke, a warrior from an alien culture who could become a true friend because he owed no other allegiance to anyone else in Japan. Already a devastating warrior, Yasuke quickly learned the code and customs of the samurai. It seems that Yasuke almost naturally became an informal bodyguard to the shogun, and was continually instructed in samurai philosophy by the shogun himself. Before long he had mastered the Bushido code, and Odo Nobunaga presented him with a short katana, the wakizashi. This weapon designed for close-quarter combat was exactly the type of warrior that a kalariput warrior was trained to use with a small shield, another clue to Yasuke's origin. The ceremony was conducted in what would become Yasuke's house on the palace grounds, and he was named weapon bearer to the shogun and hailed as samurai, the first gaijin, foreigner, to ever attain the exalted rank. During this time period, he must have impressed the shogun and the samurai greatly with his skill of using cannon, because he was soon put in charge of a battery and responsible for training men to become proficient in their use. He would have also been measured and fitted for traditional samurai armor, With his height and size, he would have been an impressive and intimidating presence at the shogun's side, the one and only African samurai. Now think back to that trip we took to the Battle of Nagashino Castle, where you, Oda Nobunaga, and your friend Tokugawa Ieyasu, vanquished the bulk of the samurai knights of the Takeda Clan. That battle wasn't the beginning or the end of the war with the Takeda. After the horrific loss, the Takeda's power steadily dwindled. Both Oda and especially Tokugawa Ieyasu pursued and hunted down their leaders one by one. And now, soon after Yasuke becomes samurai, word reaches the capital that Tokugawa Ieyasu has at last trapped the elusive leader, Takeda Katsuyori, in his clan's last castle. And that Tokugawa Ieyasu needs support to besiege it. Oda Nobunaga and a large honor guard including Yasuke ride hard, gathering forces in the provinces. Oda is eager to be there to witness the end of one of his most hated foes, the last heir of the ancient Takeda clan. Once joining the siege at the castle, Yasuke meets the legendary daimyo and samurai warrior Tokugawa Ieyasu, who is very impressed by him and made note of Yasuke's size and skill at arms. He is put in charge of Oda's siege cannon and the castle walls are slowly, shot by shot, brought down. Before they are breached, however, Takeda Katsuyori sets the castle ablaze and flees to a mountain stronghold. The men there want nothing to do with Oda's army, so they deny him entry. With no hope left, the last Takeda commits seppuku, ritual suicide, before the stronghold's gates. In the following days, the shogun and his army begin their progress through the Takeda province, now their land, taking stock of its resources, towns, and people. This is when a messenger reaches them and tells the shogun that another vassal is in desperate need of reinforcement in the south. Oda Nobunaga calls a war council and it is decided that Tokugawa Ieyasu will see to securing their new lands and Oda's army will take the direct road to the south to answer the plea for aid. It should be noted that Samurai, though not exactly religious, were extremely superstitious. During the council, he asks his monk and astrologer if he has made a wise decision. The monk informs him that omens favor a good outcome only if he returns to Kyoto and performs a religious tea ceremony in the sacred Buddhist temple of Hanoji. It would take weeks for the whole army to make the march to the city and weeks more to march south again, weeks his ally didn't have, so he made a fateful decision. He takes a small honor guard and rides hard to the temple to hold the ceremony while his army continued south. He would then ride back in time to take command and to relieve his ally. With just 20 samurai, including Yasuke, Oda Nobunaga, shogun of Japan, galloped towards the capital and his fate. They reached the temple in the late evening on June 20th, 1582. Though late, word of the arrival of the shogun and his honor guard spread throughout the city and reached the ears of a rival daimyo who happened to be passing through the city with an army on his way back from campaigning in the far provinces. Remember, this is the time of Sengoku Jedi. Only showing overwhelming strength and power at all times kept ambitious followers in line. Showing the slightest weakness or letting your guard down for a second could mean death. When this vassal, a man named Akechi Mitsuhide, heard that the shogun was in a lightly fortified temple with a mere 20 samurai, he saw his chance. In his mind, if he killed Oda Nobunaga, seized the capital, and then quickly sent his army to kill the Oda heir, he could name himself shogun, and the power would be his. It was a risky plan. Oda Nobunaga had powerful friends, but remember the samurai code. Calculated risk is what gives life its spice now I could just tell you what happened, and I no doubt would do so suavely, but this is deep into history and you're with your friend and Lord master Arjun. So take a deep breath, let it out slowly, if you got it put some smoke in the air, prepare to enter Yasuki and go to war with the African Samurai. The advance at the temple of Honogi in the early morning of September 21st, 1582 might have gone something like this. Ready? Then let's go. You are walking on the dew-laden stones of the central courtyard of the temple of Hanoji. You look at the moon's position in the sky and know it's only a few hours till dawn. Though you are tired from the long days of hard riding and you could use the rest, you've allowed others to get sleep first. Though you are all samurai, only you have been trained to be fully alert while sleep-deprived at the Kalari temple in your faraway homeland. You are standing watch with ten men most walking various parts of the grounds, and some manning the short and ornate towers at each corner of the equally ornate walls. Though the beautifully carved doors at the wooden gate at the entrance archway are closed and locked, you know they would not be much of an obstacle for a determined foe to penetrate. This is a temple of Buddha dedicated to peace, not a castle made for war. It is a place of tranquility with elegant lines, not harsh angles. Inside the temple, five samurai are with the shogun who is performing a holy tea ceremony to bring his army omens of victory it apparently cannot do without. You know something of Buddhism, you are from the country of its origin after all, but you have never heard of such rituals in India. The latest in a seemingly daily reminder that though you are samurai, you are still a stranger in a strange land and have barely begun to understand this alien culture. The other five samurai are no doubt enjoying a dreamless sleep as they drew the rest period for the first watch. You stretch your arms out to your sides and roll your shoulders. You have come to have great admiration for the skill with which your armor was crafted, with hundreds of small steel discs woven to strong cloth and leather, but you are still not fully used to the weight. Attached to your left arm is your kalari shield, a small buckler, and at your waist is your wakizashi, the razor sharp sword short presented to you by the shogun himself. You smile to yourself, proud and honored to have been taught the ways of the samurai by such a man, and even more proud to have showed such a great warrior something of the warrior code and ways of your people, the city. He is more than your daimyo, more than the shogun. Oda Nobunaga has become your dearest friend, and you do not bestow your friendship lightly. From nearby in the city you hear a dog start barking, seconds later joined by another, and then many more. Something was wrong. And then you hear the patter of hundreds of feet building to a low rumble. "'Soldiers, protect the sho-!' yells one of your comrades in the tower to your right. His cry of alarm suddenly cut off as he falls onto his knees, grasping at the arrow shot from beyond the wall and now hopelessly lodged in his throat. A samurai in the other tower falls out and into the courtyard, his body slamming hard into the ground, dead weight, with numerous arrows protruding from his armor. Alarm, you yell, but before you can go have a look at who or what is coming, there's a loud crack and the temple's gate shudders from the impact of a batting ram. A few seconds later, another booming crash as splinters erupt from newly formed cracks in the wood. The ornate gates won't hold long. Katanas drawn, two friendly samurai take up places on either side of you. As another samurai approaches, you say, we must get the shogun out of the temple now. We are surrounded, he answers, breathlessly, no hope in his voice. You look at your surroundings, quickly studying and searching. There. From the rooftop of one of the buildings attached to the temple, it just might be possible to jump across the street to a lower rooftop building, provided you could get a running start. Your head snaps back to the gate as with a final loud crash, it bursts apart. Splinters of wood spray the courtyard and bounce off your armor. The metal demon's head on the tip of the ram sneers at you. From the corners of your eyes, you see men's heads popping up from behind the walls who must be using ladders. You draw your sword and rush to meet them, but just then they're shot with arrows. You dare to take a glance behind you at the temple entrance and see Oda Nobunaga dressed in the fine silk robes he was required to wear for the tea ceremony. He had not had time to don his armor. The ten warriors with him were all aiming and firing bows at the men coming over the walls. To me, he orders calmly but loudly, his voice devoid of any emotion, as he channels all the emotions he is feeling, fear, dread, anger, into his actions. It is the way of the samurai. You and the men with you dash to stand in front of him. You spread your arms to make sure no friend is within range of your sword. There, at the temple's entrance, sixteen samurai and the shogun stand ready as enemies come pouring through the gate. When the colors of the battle banners attached to poles on some of their backs become clear, you hear the shogun say the name, Akechi, as if it's a curse word. Death to the traitors, he yells, and draws his katana free of its scabbard. You barely hear it, because you have entered your battle trance, a defensive stance designed and practiced against multiple enemies. Your acrobatic kalari confounds your attackers as you block, dodge, parry, and flawlessly riposte. Each cut from your wakizashi lethal, for you have you spent your life, including your life as a samurai, training for this moment. This is the melding of two warrior codes, and your unique style's ultimate test. The warriors you are facing are also lifelong adherents to their warrior code and very skill, though your size, strength and completely alien technique are holding them back for now. This cannot go on forever. After slashing your fifth attacker across the isolates of his helmet, your sword becomes lodged in his shoulder pads. Disarmed, you are forced to take a step back and find yourself next to the shogun. Retreat into the temple, he orders and begins to back through the doorway. You and the seven remaining samurai mimic his movements, fighting all the while. The courtyard is full of enemies, with more coming in from every direction. Five stay to guard the outer door as the Shogun motions for you to follow him inside. As you run through the maze of hallways, you pass terrified monks and still others brandishing daggers and clubs, preparing to defend their temple. You enter a chamber with a long table set with an elaborate tea service, which you realize must have been the room where the ceremony took place. Shogun, you say, if we reach the roof, there may be a way to escape. For the briefest instant, it seems like he's hopeful like he's the man you've come to know, full of other emotions besides the marshal. But it passes quickly, and his normal stoic face returns, and he's the shogun again. I am shogun, he says. Daimyo of daimyo's. Warlord of warlords. Yasuke, my friend. I cannot flee. It would bring dishonor to my name and shame on my clan forever. He looks at you with a rare smile on his face. You must go, my friend. I need you to warn my son and heir at Ninjo Castle. Tell him of the Akechi's betrayal and get word to Tokugawa and Toyotomi. They will answer his call. Tell him, I died with my honor intact. You feel hot tears spilling uncontrollably from your eyes. Unable to speak, you extend your arm to Odo Nobunaga, and your friend, your brother, grasps it firmly for the last time. Go now, he says, his voice breaking ever so slightly. Unable to look at your friend again and still maintain your composure, you turn and begin running through the maze of hallways until you find the stairs that allows you to reach the roof. You run to the end of the narrow and flat rooftop. You see that you may just be able to make the jump to the lower building across the street you saw earlier, but only if you remove the weight of your heavy armor. You pull off your helmet and begin the laborious process of removing your armor, untying straps and undoing leather buckles. Desperate minutes pass as you strip down to your padded undergarments. In that time, you see flames bursting out of the windows near the section of the temple where you left your friend. At last free of your armor, you are about to turn and run to your escape when you see an samurai come up the stairs, roar a battle cry, raise his katana in both hands over his head and charge at you. He is just a few dozen paces away. You don't think. It is reflex. You bring your legs together, standing straight, your head tilted slightly back, and your arms brought tight to your sides, your hands, fists. You breathe in deeply to center yourself so you can channel your grief and rage into the center of your being. All the other noise fades away as you count the steps your enemy has taken. You open your red eyes and through the blurring effect of your tears you see him nearing and decide it's time. With the fluidity of a wave and all the power of a tsunami, you lunge forward and in the same motion strike out with both fists into the center of the oncoming samurai's chest. It is not just your fists. Your will, your entire being is focused into that strike. The energy of your emotions flows out through your knuckles and into your enemy. As if in slow motion, his face changes from the frenzy of battle, to anger, to confusion, to misunderstanding, then disbelief, and finally, utter horror, just as the sound of cracking bones reaches both your ears. For the briefest instance, you are not in this foreign land, but long ago at the Kalari Temple with your combat yoga master smiling down at you proudly, the day you mastered the technique as a boy. The samurai collapses in front of you, dead, his ribcage shattered. You turn and sprint for the roof's edge, and then jump into the night, trusting the speed and timing of your jump to your memory, because the mission was everything. This was how a city trained in the temples of Karnataka, and by merit risen to his rank of samurai, made war. At least it might have gone like that. The ambush at Hanoji Temple was vicious and surprise was complete. Oda Nobunaga had made a huge mistake by moving with so few samurai and in Sengoku Jedi, mistakes meant death, especially for a powerful daimyo. The only upside being that Yasuke escaped to carry out his mission. As the Ketchi samurai began to try to force their way into the room where they had carried out the tea ceremony, the samurai with Oda Nobunaga set the entrance on fire so that he could be second to his master during his seppuku. The shogun cut deeply and then slashed across, opening his stomach from left to right, where the samurai believed the soul dwelt, and his life was ended with, by a blow across his neck by his loyal retainer, who then committed seppuku by himself. We have no idea how, but Yasuke made it out of the city and by many reports fought and ambushed his way, re equipping himself with the weapons and armor of a catchy samurai he came across, after he killed them, of course. He reached Ninjo Castle just ahead of the pursuing Akechi army. Once in the castle, he told the heir named Oda Nobutada about his father's death and his last instructions. I can't find a single source that can solidly confirm whether or not the new head of the Oda clan was able to send messengers to Tokugawa Ieyasu or to another loyal vassal Toyotomi Hideyoshi. But if messengers were sent, I have no doubt at least one of their father's most faithful retainers would have come with their army. Either one was many times more powerful than the Akechi clan, not to mention the fact that the Oda clan's army was still in the field marching south, the whole reason for the fateful trip to the temple, and they would most certainly have been sent for had he been able to. Since no relief came to make good his escape, this means that Yasuke had a rush to keep just ahead of the Akechi army and that the samurai he killed were the army scouts. Thus he made it into the castle just in time to be besieged along with the Oda heir. The letter of his mission complete, but definitely not the spirit in which it was given. For without quick relief, the castle would fall, and the heir, his friend's oldest son, would die. Without the heir, though Oda Nobunaga had other sons, none were old enough to be samurai, thus leaving the clan without a daimyo. Every clan had factions, and without the Oda heir, the clan could potentially tear itself apart in dynastic civil war. This was exactly why the Akechi army had made the mad dash across the province to the castle. If they killed the heir, they could seize power in the chaos of an internal Oda clan war. The details of the very short siege and the quick storming of Ninjo Castle are very few. What we do know is that the Akechi forces attacked and forced entrance, either over the walls or by breaching the gate with a ram. Vastly outnumbered, the Oda forces, Yasuke with them, fought brilliantly but in a lost cause. They held just long enough to allow the heir, Oda no Butada, the time to commit seppuku and die with honor. Yasuke fought on until he was the last defender standing, surrounded, exhausted and in a hopeless fight he was taken prisoner. He was brought before the traitorous daimyo Akachi Mitsuhide, who called Yasuke an animal and barbarian. He said it would bring dishonor to kill him, so he ordered him return to the new church in Kyoto, where the Jesuit Alessandro was based. The true reason for the decision to spare him, however, was most likely that Akechi desperately needed access to Portuguese guns, cannon, and other imports. By now many knew the strange tale of Yasuke and how he had come to the island, so not wishing to offend the Jesuit, they sent him back. Unfortunately, this is the last time Yasuke is ever mentioned in history. We don't know what happened after he returned to the church. People have speculated that he most likely left the island on a Portuguese ship and made his way back to his homeland. Others say that devastated by the loss of his friend and his failure to protect his heir, Yasuke wandered Japan as a ronin, a masterless samurai. To me, this seems unlikely. So in place of history, I would like to offer you a story, a local legend of sorts from Goa. It says that in the late 16th century, a Portuguese galley was found beached on its side to the south of the small port city. The galley had come from the far east, full of silks and valuables, all intact, left sitting in the hold, undisturbed. The crew, however, was found to be dead or missing, and the vessel's slaves were gone. They had vanished, their chains unlocked, their bonds broken. I like to think that Yasuke, the African samurai, led them in an uprising against their cruel masters as they neared Goa and then took the newly freed men to the safety of the hills of Karnataka so that they could learn the ways of Kalari and the ways of the proud and glorious city so that they could never be made slaves again. Thank you for listening to Deep Into History. I truly hope you enjoyed this episode. Please consider liking and subscribing my podcast on iTunes and please leave a review. It really helps the show grow. Again, to show your support for just 10 cents a day, please go to patreon.com slash deep into history. You can also follow me on Twitter at deep into history and get your daily blast from the past. Once again, my friends, thank you for listening. I truly look forward to the next time we go deep. Take care of yourselves.